on behalf of Justin and Rebecca and my wife and the Kleins, uh, we're so thankful that you're here tonight. We really want to express gratitude for the, the huge outpouring of love and affection in these last few days, the prayers, and just your very presence here tonight means so much to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for um, all that you've tried to communicate to us in these last few days. It has made a difference. And if one didn't believe in the power of prayer before this experience, he or she would have to afterward because God truly uses prayer as a means of grace to mediate um, his kindness and his mercy. And so, thank you. And I want to uh, extend a word of thankfulness to Glenn Funeral Home. Um, these folks are wonderful to work with. They've been so kind, so thoughtful, so considerate, so flexible. And I just want to express that genuine word of uh, gratitude. One thing we learned from watching Ezra is that even though he lived only seven weeks, he lived long enough to prove that uh, he was a true human being because he knew how to purr after he ate. That was a beautiful uh, sound to hear uh, such satisfaction lying with his mother there. Let's just seek the Lord for a moment and ask his blessing upon uh, the service tonight. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for the purpose of this gathering, even though it's difficult. Uh, we're here primarily to praise and worship you. We're here to acknowledge you. And especially tonight, in many ways, repeatedly to say that we, we don't merely believe that you're good and wise and kind. And as we heard sung tonight, too wise to be mistaken, too good to be unkind. We don't just believe that to be true. We know it to be true. And we praise you for that. And by your grace, we who know you would join Job in saying, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we pray tonight that you will indeed be glorified in all that is said and done. And we pray that good will be done to our souls. Lord, you know the needs of each of us. Some of us have come here with faith, and some have come in unbelief. We all need your help and your grace. And we pray that when we leave here tonight, we will be changed. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.
And I'm so privileged from that standpoint to stand here and to speak. And I feel that I have so much to learn from you all. And I seek and I want to emulate your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, I want to encourage you because I know that you need encouragement. And so if you'll allow me for a few minutes to encourage you with, the, with God's word. I want to encourage you guys this afternoon and this evening by affirming the truth that God is at work in you. Right now, he's at work in you in your life. And I know that you know that, but the question I want to ask you is, how is it or how does God intend to meet you in this trouble and sorrow? Specifically, how, how is God going to engage you in your sufferings? How does God give you the grace to, to meet this circumstance in the middle of these dark waters? Because we can sit here this evening and we can give pat answers and, and we can give rote mechanical answers, but the beautiful thing is, is that God intends to surprise you with his answers. And he will not do things our way. God will not do things our way. He will do things his way. And he will do things in his time. But here's what I want you all to know, is that God is speaking. He is not silent. God is talking. And he is speaking directly into your suffering. And he's telling you who he is and what he is like. And God is doing that with specific care for you and intimate knowledge of what you're going through. And he's going to tell you some of his purposes behind this, and he's going to reveal to you his promises, and he's going to give you things that, you, that he knows that you will need. So let me read a text of Scripture and share with you some things that I think God is saying to you. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2 says this, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. Now, there's a hymn that is based on this text of Scripture. I'm not sure if you know what that hymn is, but it's called um, How Firm a Foundation. And in that hymn, we sing the following lines. When through deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And I love those words because they flow right from Scripture, and they teach us what God is doing in and through suffering. And right now, Justin and Rebecca, you guys need to hear God's voice. If there's anything you need at this moment, it's to hear God's voice. David Pallison said, and he was right when he said it, a sufferer's primal need is to hear God talking and to experience him purposefully at work. That changes everything. And what I want to tell you tonight is that God is purposefully at work in you. So Justin and Rebecca, let me mention three things from this text that I think God is saying to you. Number one, God is saying, I have called you into these deep waters. Isaiah is referring to the time, of course, in the context where Israel is faced with the Red Sea and they're coming right up to the Red Sea and their enemies are on their back 
And in a situation like that, human beings cannot deliver themselves from. They do not have the power to rescue themselves from such a difficulty. The trial is way too severe. It's beyond them. But God called them into the waters, and he did it with the intent of saving them. And so, Justin and Rebecca, God is calling you into these waters, and he's doing it with a gracious intent. In fact, as you walk through these waters, God is restating his core promise to you. With an eye toward your future, God is saying to you, I will be with you. Now, that's highly encouraging because when God says this, he's not just referring to merely just warm feelings of comfort that friends provide for you. So the church comes along and they provide care and comfort for you. He's not just referring to a family who promises to stand by your side. No, whether church members are there or whether family is there or not, God is saying, I have called you into these waters and I will walk with you all the way through them to the very end of these waters. God will prove his love to you and he will do that to the very end of your life. And if God pledges his absolute fidelity to you, which he does, if indestructible love will see you through to a good end, and it will, then you are able, Justin and Rebecca, to walk a very hard road because you're doing it with Jesus. And, and this big God that you serve comes close to you and he speaks tenderly to you and he tells you that he is at work in your life. And that means that this particular suffering did not happen by accident. It, it's not random chance. It's not a pointless misery. It's not bad luck. No, it's wisely woven by the hand of God for your good and the glory of his kingdom. And so God has called you into these waters and he promises you his presence. So that's the first thing. Number two, the second thing I think God is saying to you is very comforting. He's saying, I have a limit on your sorrows. I've placed a limit on your sorrows. Again, Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. And I, I take that to mean that you're not going to drown in your sorrows. That though they are great and though they are t intense, that you all will not drown in those sorrows. You will not be drowned by this trial. You will not sink. And the hymn writer again says, When through deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. They're not going to overflow on you guys. You're going to make it. Because Jesus is with you. And so the point is, God has set a limit on your sorrows, the pain and the sorrow that he's asking you to endure. It's not infinite pain and sorrow. It is finite. It is limited. And all of our lives, every one of us in this room, all of our lives, we will suffer and endure certain amounts of pain in this life. But in the end, Christ will, if we're in Christ, Christ will usher in a happy ending. Isn't that good for all of us? Dante um, said of the Christian life, he said of the Christian story that it has the happiest ending of, er of any story ever written. And you know what? Dante was right on that point. We do. We have the happiest ending of any story ever written. And, and life and joy and love are going to get the last say. And God is going to speak that. High sovereignty is going somewhere. God's purposes are never aimless. They're purposeful. They're deeply purposeful. And our rivers of sorrow may sweep many, many precious things away. But one thing, Justin and Rebecca, it will never sweep away is the presence of God. 
God's ever-abiding presence will be with you. And so God has called you to go through these high waters. And though sometimes it will feel impossible, you must remember that God has set a boundary and a limit on your sorrow. He knows your frame. And he counts you as worthy to suffer for his name. And that leads me to the third thing that I think God is telling us and telling you specifically. Justin and Rebecca, he's telling you that I'm at work bringing good from this. God wants to convince you and show you that this hard thing will result in more good than you can ever ask, imagine, see, hear, or conceive in your heart. Again, the hymn writer says, For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Romans 8.28 is crystal clear. For we, all, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, we've heard that verse a thousand times. And actually, to the degree that we've heard it so many times, it begins to lose its power and effectiveness in our life. But consider what he's really saying. Consider the promise for a moment. God is saying that none of your sufferings will be wasted. None of them, all of them will be used to bring good, not only to you, but to his kingdom. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. God is doing a thousand goods through Ezra's death. And, and you will probably not know most of those goods that he's doing, but you will know some of those goods because God will want you to know what he is doing with his life. And that will be beautiful for you to see that. God will show you the things that he's graciously doing. He will do that because he's eager to show his character. And that's why the hymn writer says, I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. He doesn't say sanctify you, sanctify to you your deepest distress. God is going to show you that this is worth it for, you, for your good and for his glory. And, and he's going to show you that progressively through time. What you learn about God in this affliction will be used to help others as they deal with their afflictions. God is transforming you and he's transforming the world that you live in through Ezra's life and death. So let me close this way. Justin and Rebecca, because you're human, you will be tempted to sometimes say, why, why me? Why us? Why, why this? Why now? Why? You'll be tempted to say that because that's what we all do. That is human nature. But when those inward questions begin to dominate your thinking, I just want you to turn your ear to heaven. Turn your ear towards heaven and listen once again to God's voice because he is telling you that he called you into these waters of suffering for his glory and that he will be with you all the way through those waters to the end and that he will not let you drown in those waters but will in fact use them for your good and for his glory. And when you hear his voice, when you see that he is for you and that he is with you, the whole way that those inward questions, those why me questions will begin to quiet and you will find yourself turning outward and actually saying, why you, Jesus? Why you? Why would you go through this loss for me, this weakness, this pain, this hardship, this sorrow, this death? And why would you do this for me, a sinner? And he will take your why me questions and turn them into why you questions. And that is when your mind will be most productive. 
And then you will find the ability to ask the most unimaginable things. You will start saying things like, why not us? Why not this? If somehow, some way, our lives as a couple can be a candle in this dark world through this to show the beauty of Jesus Christ, if somehow, some way, we are privileged to fill up the sufferings of Christ, if somehow, some way, God will sanctify to us this deepest distress, then why not us, Lord? We, you will say, Lord, we will walk with you through these fiery trials and through this high water. We will go with you and we will do it by faith. God will do that to you and he is worthy. And Justin, Rebecca, I love the fact that you know he's worthy. That's clear. It's crystal clear to me and I love that. And that's God's grace in your life. And may the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rest upon you. Psalm 112 verse 4, light dawns in darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. And I want to close with this word from, this quotation from John Piper. I was so encouraged by this. Here's what he says. The longest life of any person on earth is like a vapor breath on a cold winter morning. If the distance between the walls in this room represent eternity, the distance from the wall representing Ezra's life and the distance representing ours would be so infinitesimally small that you would not be able to see the difference with the naked eye. We will all be gone very soon. That is one of the great truths Ezra was sent to teach us. God's design for Ezra and all of his designs were decided before he was born. He would exist for the glory of God, 55 days of work on this earth, and then the rest of his work would be in heaven. None of us can begin to estimate the magnitude of either. Who knows what has been set in motion on earth by the birth and death of Ezra Klein. It would be wild and unwarranted folly to think that he has not changed the world. Ezra Klein is happier than the happiest person that ever lived on the earth. That he misses the idea that he somehow misses Earth's pleasures of marriage and children and food and friends do not cause him the slightest regret. I can assure you. He took a much shorter route to the one in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And if you don't know Jesus, now is a good time to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know pleasures that are forevermore, you can come. You can come to Jesus. He is available for you. And one of the ways that Ezra's life will be used by God's glory is that one of you will bow your knee to Jesus Christ and give yourself to him. Do that tonight. Justin and Rebecca would be happy to lead you to the Lord. Justin and Rebecca, Ezra was created to glorify God. He did that. And he's doing that right now. Let's worship God with him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Ezra Blaze Klein. Thank you that this world will forever be different because of him and the work that you're doing through his parents through this. The world is affected and we praise you for that. 
And we ask you, God, that as you walk with Justin and Rebecca through this trial, that they would worship you like they have never worshipped you before. Fill them now with your spirit. We give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 
First of all, I just want to thank you so much for coming here and support um, in honor of our son. We thank you for every prayer that you prayed, for all your kind words. It ministers to us so much. We, we are humbled and even rebuked by your compassion. We don't feel like compassionate people at all compared to what you all have been to us. So we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. God is helping us. He is still good. And we are still going to worship him. It's not a, not a question to us. God, God has been so good to us. And I want you to know that. Um, even when we don't understand, we see his good hand. I'd love to tell you all the details. I don't have time to tell you details, but uh, before I forget this thought, too, we really want to be an open book. If you have any questions, we'd love to talk about our son. Um, we've got great memories over those seven weeks, so please don't ever hesitate to bring up the name Ezra Blaze. Uh, we'd love to think about him and talk about him, so I want you to know that. Don't worry about that bothering us. We'd love to tell you about him. I want to share with you a couple of uh, verses that God has used in his word. And, uh, he's used so, so much. That's another thing that's been so helpful to us. But listen to this. In Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Sometimes we think that the Christian life, uh, you may think that it's going to be nice and easy and perfect. 
and it's far from that. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. But as we have been uh, struggling uh, just in and out of grief, God has richly supplied us with more grace, uh, abundantly more grace than, than any grief we're experiencing. So I want to say that and testify to that. Now, as every father in this room who has a son, you know you have big dreams for your son. I've talked with my dad and other men uh, here this evening about my hopes. We, we put a lot into the, we, we just racked ourselves uh, thinking of, of a name for our son. We, we really try to give it a good thought for all of our children. and They're not the most conventional names probably, but uh, um, Ezra means helper. And uh, we, uh, we wanted to see, we still want him to see uh, him live up to that. And Jonathan's message was a, a wonderful message. If he would be an instrument to bring anybody closer to the Lord, we want to be closer to the Lord through this. And if anybody doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus, may this be an occasion. May this be of help to bring you to him. His middle name, Blaze, he was named after a couple of godly men um, that carried that name. And uh, I also liked how it kind of sounded fast and strong. He's lived up to that. Um, I, 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 he was a strong boy. Um, he had shoulders. He was cut. He had big legs. And I was hoping that maybe one day uh, we'd hear his name maybe announced at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska. Maybe he'd be a football player or something. Um, he'd be quick. He came fast. He came three weeks early. And he left about 55 days later. God called him to himself. This, is, this was his will. He was never supposed to be able to walk and talk, throw a football, or run a race. That wasn't his design. God is showing me that. That wasn't his purpose for our son. What we wanted most is that he would worship and praise God. And we firmly believe that we got that faster than we ever could have imagined. We're very thankful for that. One of the things that was most heart-wrenching and, and just uh, difficult is he seemed so perfect to me. He seemed, I, I, I just really, uh, part of me doesn't want another son to replace him. He seemed so perfect. Um, but what God has shown me is that he's not perfect. Well, he wasn't perfect. But God's son is perfect. We need, we need God's son. I need Jesus. I need Jesus more than I need my son. I, I really don't need my son. I need the Lord. I want him to be my portion. We need, we need a perfect righteousness. You know that. Before we go into eternity, we need, we need something perfect for God to be able to look on us with favor. And no family member can provide that. But only Jesus can. And uh, I will hurry up. My wife um, made mention as we were, just to kind of give you a glimpse of um, some of the things that we're experiencing, God is teaching us. As we were holding hands walking to uh, the church in our neighborhood yesterday where we had a visitation, a special visitation service, we sat down in the pew and we wept. 
So we saw our son, and my wife said, this is just unthinkable, just unthinkable. And as quickly as she said those words, it's like the Lord just put it in me. Yes, but the gospel is unthinkable. You think of John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, so that whoever should believe in him will have everlasting life. God sends his son to die on a cross that we could be forgiven and made right before God. That's unthinkable. That's unthinkable, but it's true. Prayer requests for us and, uh, and just some, some thoughts and challenges that um, the Lord would continue to help us to trust in him for his goodness. Secondly, that we would find Jesus as our portion and comfort. Uh, we, we love our daughters. They can't replace, they, they, they are not, I mean, God will use them to minister to us, but at the end of the day, if we put our hope in them, God could take them away just as easily. Our son was on loan to us for seven weeks. He really didn't belong to us. The things we have really don't belong to us, but belong to God. So I want the Lord to be our portion. That the Lord would teach us to number our days. 54 or 55 days to be exact for our son. And uh, my wife carried him 37 weeks. We were blessed to be, to be able to interact with him for a fifth of that time, about seven. And I want to make, make every moment count. I want to be living for eternity. I want to be living for the Lord. And I hope that that's your desire too. And if it's not your desire, I hope that it will be your desire by the time that you leave. Jonathan mapped out eternity from wall to wall or from just seven weeks to however many years we'd be given. And it really doesn't matter at the end of the day in all eternity. This life's a vapor. And then lastly, that we would live like this with palms up in submission to God's will. We want to be just ready for him to take Whatever he'd like, it's his anyway. So please pray for that for us. The night that the um, Sunday night in the emergency room, the doctor that had worked so hard on Ezra, and I've been told that there were about nine nurses and a really good doctor uh, that just would not give up. He came in our room, and, and I kind of nodded to let him know, that I, I know he's, I know you're going to tell me that he's gone. And he knelt down beside me and he said, Mrs. Klein, little Ezra did not make it. Tell me, what was he like? And I want to tell you what he was like. The first time the nurses brought him to me in the hospital after they'd given him his bath and done his tests and, and brought him back to me, it literally knocked my breath out how beautiful he was and I I thought Eliza and Jersey were awfully pretty but he knocked my breath out and I called Justin he he had gone home to rest a little bit but his phone was turned off but I was just going to tell him heads up I'm going to warn you he is so beautiful uh, I called him sweet pea 
which is not the most masculine name for a boy. But in seven weeks, that's what he was. He was sweet. And even as I held his lifeless body on Sunday night, I heard, I heard the words come out of my mouth, oh, sweet pea. He was so sweet. Yes. Justin already mentioned, I didn't know he was going to mention the meaning of his name. Ezra means helper. And we do believe that he was sent to help teach us many, many things. Um, his mom and daddy and many other people will spend the rest of our lives learning what he was sent to, to teach us. And Blaze, his life, God knew that we would name him Blaze and that his life would be a blaze. A blaze of the glory of God that would just fly by and be gone. And uh, it teaches us how fragile life is. Mm -hmm. On Monday, we, we received his birth certificate in the mail, and on Tuesday, we signed his funeral papers. It, life is so short, and we have to be ready to meet God and make sure that we're trusting in Jesus alone to get us to God. Um, I also want to thank all of you for every hug, every email, every text message, every scripture that has gone deep into our souls. Even on my way here, a friend was texting me, the lyric to a song, in every trial and loss, my hope is in the cross where his compassions never fail. Every person and has been a piece of healing to us and we thank you. I can tell you that by the kindness of God, there is still laughter and joy and singing in our house Amen. with tears in between, but it is still there. Um, there are not enough hours in a day to receive the love that's trying to be given to us. I've used the analogy before, but I always had too much milk for Ezra Blaze, and it would it would come it was more than he could handle, and it would just come come out of his mouth, and that's how the grace of God is to us right now. It is more than we can take in, and it's just running down, it's just running down. So, um, it, and I can also tell you that it is an honor, and we are unworthy to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. And also, as Justin said, um, as a mother, I, I did get everything I ever wanted for my son. I wanted him to be happy. I wanted him to be free from suffering and pain. Um, I wanted him to have Jesus. And I got it all really, really fast. Amen. So I thank God. Pastor Ted asked me to say um, the history behind this hymn. Uh, Benjamin Bedham, who wrote this uh, pastor from the uh, 1700s, would write hymns to go along with his sermons. And this particular hymn he wrote on uh, 
the day he didn't know that his son would um, pass away that very day that he gave this particular sermon with this hymn. I want to tell you that when the service is over in just a little while, in just a few minutes, we will be singing congregationally uh, a wonderful psalm, Psalm 62. And after that, Pastor Mark is going to come and lead us in prayer, and Joy will be playing some prelude. If you would be, just be very patient, um, the family, 
we'll come by the casket and look at little Ezra again just briefly. And then um, our friends from Glen Funeral Home will come and, and remove the casket from our worship center here. And once they do, you're welcome. We're not going to dismiss you row by row or anything formally. We're a gathering for the most part of believers. And you're welcome just to uh, leave or stand around, visit, and Justin and Rebecca will be here. It could be that some of you didn't get an opportunity to speak to them. You're welcome to come. So we want it to be informal and um, friendly and down home in that regard. I just want to say a word about the trauma that unfolded so quickly Sunday evening. For those of you who may have no idea of what happened, it it creates and provides just a little bit of context. Um, It was a fearful and traumatic unfolding. Diane and I talked to Rebecca five minutes before she herself discovered Ezra. We were on our way to the home to take the girls to spend the night with us. Justin was in Nebraska. And when we arrived, there there was a police car there, and then he just sort of pulled away, got out of the car to begin to walk to the house, and Eliza ran to me, uh, frantic, crying. He's blue. He's blue. He's blue. He's blue. And I said, honey, what's blue? I thought she'd seen a bug. She's very fearful of bugs. And she said, Ezra's blue. And then suddenly police cars converged. A fire truck arrived with men to help. And we heard an ambulance in the background. And Rebecca came out the front door holding Ezra and greeting the police. And and that's when she said, uh, my sweet pea, my sweet pea. He's not breathing. He's not breathing. And they did all they could do on the lawn. Eventually, the ambulance took him to the hospital, and you heard from Rebecca. And she and I sat together for a long time, both of us fairly certain that Ezra had gone. On the way to the hospital, I called Justin. One of the few of the hardest calls ever made in my life, one was made to Jeff Cotiller when Chad drowned. I said, Justin, there's a crisis unfolding, and it involves Ezra. And it doesn't look like he's going to live. And poor Justin just, oh, oh. And he wept. And he said, can we pray? I said, yes. He prayed on the phone. And then I prayed. And we said, Lord, if Ezra's dead, you can bring him back to life if you like. But we trust you. And we prayed. And we had some outside hopes that he might be revived. But his soul, we believe, was in heaven. And obviously you understand that from the things that Jonathan and Justin and Rebecca have already said. I could take time to defend why I believe infants under such circumstances have been redeemed by Christ and go to heaven. But it's not my purpose tonight to to defend that view or to show you why I'm among those who hold it. What I want to do is just share a few lessons because I agree that God 
is speaking to us. I think it was Jonathan who made that point. God is speaking to everyone in this room and to the many people who are watching via live stream. And there are lots and lots of people. We welcome you. We're thankful you're uh, tuning in, watching, and we hope you will be blessed and helped. There are only two categories of people here tonight. There are believers and unbelievers, or if you'd like to think of it differently, there are the saved and the unsaved. There are the converted and the unconverted. Those are the only two categories at the end of the day that divide all of humanity. And a word, a brief word to you who are fellow believers with us tonight by whatever medium, present or through live streaming. I want to remind us, dear brothers and sisters, that we must try hard in view of the quick departure of Ezra not to live presumptuously. I submit to you that not intentionally but unintentionally, not overtly but covertly, we all live presumptuously. I live presumptuously. We take the moment, the hour, the day for granted. We don't even imagine that something could happen. But what we need to do is to keep mindful of how it is God alone who is actually in control of our lives. We are ultimately not in control of them. Every hour is a gift from the Lord. And we need to say that to ourselves often. We need to be in a situation and say, you know what, this is an hour. This is a gift from God. This is from God, isn't it? And have a thankful spirit and maybe just even quickly offer up thanks to God for that moment. Things can change so suddenly. That's why Solomon said, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27, 1. He could have just as easily said, do not boast about the next hour. I left this sanctuary Sunday evening, the grandfather of four children, and within two hours, I was the grandfather of three. Rebecca walked up the stairs to the bedroom with Eliza, who likes to go with her to check on little Ezra. And I can assure you that every step up that stairway, she was a happy woman until she flipped on the light and suddenly, in an instant, her entire world collapsed on her when she saw the blueness and the grayness of Ezra and picked him up and felt the lifelessness. What is that? That's a lesson. That is God speaking to us, Jonathan. And it is God saying to us, I am in control. You are not in control. Every moment is a gift from me. And we must, dear brothers and sisters, live that way. Live God consciously in his presence. And the second thing I want to say to you who are parents, see your children as gifts from God. And steward those gifts. Treat that gift as from God. And as soon as possible, bring the gospel to those children so that they can understand as early as possible their need for the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior.
The psalmist said, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward, his reward. Mom and dad, every day of your life, see your children as a gift, a gift to be stewarded for his glory. That's two lessons. The third lesson is this. When you see death, dear brothers and sisters, when we see death, we need to hate it. We need to hate death because it is our enemy. The Apostle Paul said concerning our Savior, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. And we need to hate it. And we need to hate it because of what it is caused by. It is caused by sin. And we need to hate sin even more than we hate death. We need to hate hate every form of sin. Pride, selfishness, envy, lying, careless speech, illicit sex, fornication, adultery, lust, gossip, unbelief. Every sin we need to hate because... It's all vile, and it's all wicked, and it's all contrary to God and His will, and it's all addictive, and it's all enslaving and unsatisfying and soul-damning. It's all deadly. Hate it, brothers and sisters. Hate it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's Jesus-killing. It's cross requiring. So when you see death, hate it and hate its cause, which is sin. And when you see death, however, let it turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, love and adore him, because he is the one who conquered death and sin by the cross. He brought about by his perfect life and justice-satisfying atonement the death of death. The death of death is a great work written by a Puritan called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. So look away from death to Jesus Christ who conquered death His work of satisfying the just wrath of God was so perfect and so satisfying to God that the Father raised him from the dead and seated him on his own right hand and put him on a throne and gave him a kingdom because of what he accomplished in his life and death on the cross. The writer to the Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. My dear brothers and sisters, it is the horribleness of sin and death which make the life and work of Christ so beautiful. I thought about tweeting that idea this week. 
in words something like this. Death is horrifically ugly, but Christ is gloriously beautiful because he conquered this beast on the cross and will destroy it at his second coming. And lastly, for you brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you to love the gospel even more deeply than you may presently love it tonight and live in its power more consciously and share it with the lost more passionately. It is this gospel that makes the death of Ezra okay. It is okay. There is an atonement for sin's punishment. There is a power for overcoming sin's power. It doesn't just help Justin and Rebecca face the death of a son or Kim and Debbie, Diane and me to face the death of a grandson or Jay and Holly or Jonathan and Tina to face the death of a nephew. It helps us face the discouragement of all of our miserable failures, of all of our miserable failures, to live the way God calls us to live, our pride, our discontent, our slothfulness, our lack of love, our poorness of devotion, our impatience with our children or with our parents or with our spouse. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our righteousness. Justice, Justin reminded us that we desperately need a righteousness. The gospel is something that we need to love increasingly more and more deeply and to preach and to share passionately. And if I could, just a word to my dear unbelieving friends who are with us tonight. Let me just make the good news clear. That's what gospel means, good news. This isn't done as often as it needs to be done at funerals. You all know that. Because everybody goes to heaven virtually at every funeral, no matter how they lived. And it grieves me when a pastor fails to take opportunity to speak to the unconverted. The first thing I want to say to you, if you are an unbeliever tonight, thank you for coming. Thank you for your kindness and your love and your comfort and your consideration. Thank you for your love for our family, especially for Justin and Rebecca. We are truly grateful for you and for your presence with us tonight. But what Justin and Rebecca want for you more than anything else is for you to share with them in the glory and the joy and the comfort and the peace of the gospel. Think of this funeral service tonight as focusing on the gospel. Remember little Ezra, but have on the foremost front of your mind the gospel. That's why I went to that funeral. God wanted me to hear the gospel, the good news. That's what gives this couple one of the most beautiful smiles you could ever see. And it isn't because they just happen to have beautiful teeth, pearly white teeth. 
Everybody talks about their smile. Let me tell you what really makes them smile tonight. It's their knowledge of, their possession of, their understanding of, their embrace of, their giving their whole life to the gospel. That's what makes them happy. That's what enables them to bury their son tomorrow. And for them, that's what does also sustain them in this most excruciating of all sorrows. Isn't it true that the, the worst nightmare that any parent can imagine is to discover their child dead? Isn't that true? Haven't we all had dreams about that? How did Rebecca do it? Because she's a strong woman? Not really. She is strong, but that isn't what did it. Because deep down she knows God. And Justin knows God. And they've given their whole life to God. They've entrusted their souls to God. And there is an eternity for them with God. They know the gospel. And for them... All of their sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. They're forgiven. In the words of the Apostle Paul, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for them or for anyone who places their hope in the gospel. Romans 8, 1. But let me say this as tenderly and lovingly as I can, dear unbelieving friends. There is condemnation for you. If you are an unbeliever, you are under condemnation right now. You are under the wrath of God right now. Such harsh words. They feel so harsh coming out of my mouth to dear friends who are here on a mission of love. How can I say that? I almost feel compelled to ask you to forgive me for saying that if you're an unbeliever, you are presently under the wrath of God. Almost. But I can't. I can't ask you to forgive me. If I ask you to forgive me for telling you the truth about your soul, I would have to ask God to forgive me for apologizing for it. The truth of the matter, dear friend, is if you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ in true godly sorrow for your sins, to give all of your sins to him, to be the payment for them, then God is offended with you. God is angry with you. God's holiness causes him to hate all sin, and his justice requires him to punish all sin. But he can only do that in a person, and there are only two persons who can take that punishment. Either we take it upon ourselves by going to hell, or Jesus takes it as the sinner's substitute. God has no alternative. He can't set his justice aside and say, I'll just quit being God in that area of my life, and I'm just going to sweep it under the carpet. God can't do that any more than God can tell a lie. Our sins must be punished, either in us or a perfect substitute. And you know now, if you didn't know before, that that perfect substitute is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is simply doing what God forbids 
and not doing what he requires. Sin is being unrighteous and it's not being perfectly righteous. And so we all need two things because we've all broken his law. We've all done the things he said don't do. All of the thou shalt nots, we've done them in one way or another. If we haven't done them physically, we've done them mentally. And we've all not done the thou shalts. So what do we need? We need a payment for our sins and we need a perfect righteousness. And the good news, the gospel, is that this is what he has provided for us. The angry, holy, just, and offended God, dear people, dear friends, is joined to love. God is also a loving God. That's why the verse could already be quoted tonight. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But you see, that's the point. His son had to be given. He had to die. He had to suffer. He had to be punished. But he gave him for all who would trust in him and who would turn to him and believe upon him. This is the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians. God has made him to be sin who knew no sin. If you could just understand that one verse, it might be enough to send you to Christ. God the Father in his holiness sent Jesus down to earth to live a perfect life. And when he was on the cross, he put all of the sins of the world upon him and he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He had never experienced sin. Why did he do that? So that after crushing him and punishing him with his holy justice and wrath, we could be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what we sometimes call the great exchange. So just boiling it all down, and with this I conclude. It's as simple as this. We're all sinners, all of us, the man preaching to you. Some of us are forgiven and others are not. If you're not forgiven and if you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is all you do. You just come to him by faith and you say, Jesus, I need you. I see now that my sins need to be punished and I don't want to take that punishment for all eternity in hell. You experienced hell on the cross. I'm going to give you all of my sins in true godly sorrow. Here they are. I give them to you. And it's as if Jesus says, yes, I'll take them. And I'll gladly be their punishment. But you don't leave yet because I have something for you. I will give you my perfect righteousness. And it's like a robe. It's beautiful. It covers us entirely. So that when God, the Father who is holy and just, looks upon those who believe in Jesus, he sees no sin. They're covered in a perfect robe of righteousness. That's the great exchange. Have you made that exchange? Have you come to Jesus and said, here's my sins just as I am and receive from him his perfect righteousness? That's how it works. That's what the gospel is about. The holy God has found a way to satisfy his justice and lovingly forgive sinners 
through the life and death of his son. But what must we do? We must come to Jesus. And here's what he says to you. Listen to these words. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites you to come to him. And I concur with Justin and Rebecca and Jonathan in saying, if the death of precious Ezra is what it takes for you to see your need of the Lord Jesus Christ, then so be it. But come to the Savior. Believe upon him. And dear unbeliever, please, I hope you're not offended with me. I'm not trying to shame or hurt anyone. I'm just trying to be honest. We all have an eternal soul. We're all going to spend eternity somewhere. We all desperately need a Savior. And I offer to you who have never come to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's yours by faith. And he offers himself to you tonight. We're going to uh, sing a, a wonderful psalm now. And please remember that after Pastor Mark prays, if you give us just a few moments for the family to come up here, we're going to come, then we're going to go back and be seated. And our friends at Glen will come and take little Ezra in the casket away. And then you may linger and visit and fellowship and even talk to the family if you, if you should so desire. May God bless you. Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Let's stand.
You can be seated. Let me lead us in prayer one more time. Father, we pause now at the conclusion of this service to to thank you, to thank you that you have sent your son, you more than Justin and Rebecca and even more than any of us, you, you know what it means to lose a son and you lost him for us. And we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, and experiencing all that you experienced for our salvation, you have proven yourself to be a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, we approach you in this conclusion of this service to plead for your ongoing grace and comfort to help Justin and Rebecca and the rest of the family, and we as their church that loves them, to give them ongoing grace and their ongoing need that just as they have testified this evening before us of the grace that has met them in their darkest hour, that your grace would continue to meet them in their darkest hours, which I'm sure are there are many days ahead. There will be moments of great sadness in the days and months and years ahead. And we pray that in each one of those moments, you would bring comforting, sustaining, sovereign grace to them in the person of your son. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in the midst of difficulty and struggle and trial because it's here we see an aspect of your glory that we would not see otherwise. May we trust your heart when we can't trace your hand. We worship you, we trust you, we look to you, in Jesus' name, amen.